This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Hi, folks. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the Transformative Principle podcast and author of the book School X, which is about redesigning your school for the people Greetings right folks. in front of you. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I are teaming up on this podcast to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. And over the coming weeks and months, we will be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, maybe politics, cyber safety, and a whole bunch of other things as well. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Good afternoon, Jethro. Hello. So good to see you, Fred. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, and we have a real treat for our audience. I have the privilege and the pleasure, I have to say, of introducing uh, Jeannie Collins, with whom I served in Burlington. I was on the school board for the better part of a decade, and she was superintendent of the Burlington School District for most of that. I'm going to do a very quick rundown on her bio to tell people a little bit more about her. She is a former special ed director with experience in California, Colorado, Arizona, and Vermont. She has a master's in special ed from the University of Northern Colorado and her Bachelor of Arts from Purdue University. She has an advanced graduate degree in administration from St. Michael's College in Vermont, which I know well because my wife used to teach there. Uh, She's a former superintendent of the year in the state of Vermont for 2011 and also the recipient of the Gail Link Award for a special education administrator of the year in 2004. She was designated a UVM distinguished educator in 2009. And she also has hands-on frontline experience in the parenting realm as the parent of five children from ages 14, I can't believe I'm saying this, to 27. (laughs) Jeannie, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. It's exciting to be here, and it's good to see you again, Fred. It is a real pleasure. It has been far too long. It looks like I will be getting up to Vermont occasionally, so if various viruses permit, we'll have a chance to talk in person. Um, so anyway, Jeannie, we, um, we did a lot of work together when we were on the Burlington School Board in the area of technology, and knowing how you have approached these issues, I thought you'd have a lot of really good insights for people. And of course, we're on with uh, my co-host, Jethro Jones, as a former principal. Um, so we sort of have all the major administrative levels of a school district right here. Jeannie, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days, and then we'll segue into the uh, chat. Uh, sure. So um, currently, I am serving as superintendent in a rural district in Vermont, Rutland Northeast Supervisory Union, based in Brandon and serving eight towns. Um, we have about 2,000 students, pre-K to 12, and um, continuing to fight the good fight. That sounds good. Let me ask you this as a way of kind of getting into the um, the technology issue. It's uh, for those of us who are on sort of the northern end of the time scale, it's a little bit embarrassing. But why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of what you've seen with respect to technology over the course of your career? Sure. When I was thinking about coming on here and I was thinking about that very question, um, I thought about when I taught in Arizona and my director asked me in the early 90s to develop a proposal to bring computers to the school that I was teaching at and how I struggled between should we get an iMac, if you recall iMacs, or should we get a PC because at the time the two platforms did not talk to each other. And I remember thinking then, why don't we develop platforms that talk to each other? And here we are years later, you know, moving through, we did get the iMac, by the way, that was my choice. And it was one computer per classroom for, you know, a class of kids. And then from there, we moved into a computer lab where you could leave the classroom for a period a day and all sit in front of your own computer, but nobody was really quite sure what you were supposed to do with it. And, but it was cool to today where uh, when the pandemic hit last March, we were opening up the school district's Wi-Fi access so people could sit in the parking lot of the school to access Wi-Fi on their phone to do their homework. Or this fall where we pivoted to a one-to-one -one, um, initiative where every kid, regardless of income level, got a Chromebook with a hotspot because we also didn't want to encroach upon the family's Wi-Fi data limits so that they could do their work remotely to uh, philosophical conversations on whether or not the guest Wi-Fi in a school should be open or not because it could lead to uh, cyberbullying that occurs in school and we can't control that. So the issues have changed pretty drastically in the last 30 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in one of those pieces about giving kids um, Wi-Fi access and still complying with COPPA, and, which is the Ch Child Online Protection Act or something like that. I don't remember now. Now I'm confused. Child Online Privacy Protection Act. Thank you. Okay, I knew, I knew you'd get it. Um, so how do you comply with that when you're giving them a hotspot that's going through a cellular carrier? That's actually how we're complying with it. And I've had some parents complain that they can afford to buy the high-end Mac Air for their kids. So why can't they use that? Um, and what we did is we purchased Chromebooks with hotspots. And because we own the Chromebook and we own the data, we can set the, the limits to comply with that law. 
But if we don't, then we have no way of complying. So last spring, when, before we bought this, we had to rely upon whatever the parents had. 25% of our kids did not have Wi-Fi access, thus the parking lot. But this fall, we knew we couldn't continue that way because there was no way to comply with that law. You know, that's really interesting, Jeannie. I mean, there's so many different issues you're raising, of course, that we marched uh, along together on. You know, for instance, when I was first on the Burlington School Board, we were looking at contracts with Dell or IBM on these one-to-one initiatives. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about the fact that in some ways the pandemic fast forwarded that initiative. But I think the more interesting discussion is that it I think is an example of how the pandemic has shown this bright light on resources and access disparities uh, within these communities. And you know your story about having kids sitting in parking lots to do homework there are stories all over the web of kids sitting outside of McDonald's or Starbucks for exactly the same reason. And and not just kids, we had teachers sitting in parking lots doing their lessons, yeah. That's really just an amazing thing. So this is probably a little bit off the beam for what we're talking about, but it does raise the question as to whether or not these resources are rising to the level of public utilities in that a functioning society requires that it's members have this kind of access in order to function. But we'll put a pin in that for another discussion. (laughs) But what I would like to ask you about is in terms of these equity issues, have you gotten pushback from the community in general? I mean, apart from people wanting to buy fancier stuff, but, but is the community generally supportive? Uh, Again, because of the pandemic, I believe, the community is generally supportive. Normally, when you move to a one-to-one initiative, you know, it takes months and communication and education and budget money. Uh, We didn't have any of those luxuries. We just started rolling out, here's your Chromebook, come pick it up on Monday if your name starts with A to Z, you know. We were fortunate at the time, we didn't know where the funding was actually going to come from, but we knew we had to do it. We are fortunate that the CARES Act did provide the funding. So we're now ahead of the game. We'll have to keep up the hardware, but you know, that was that was close to a million dollars to kick off. Um, and you may recall those budget discussions, Fred. Well, I was gonna say finance chairs <laughs> love those conversations. Like, oh, we'll find the money somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but we also now need to pay for the data plan because the hotspots are ours and that's gonna be an ongoing expense. And it's a shared data. So each child gets a certain amount, but it's a shared pool that you choose from. And and we've already had to increase it once. So there there are, the community as a whole is supportive. We went from 25% who could not access the internet to probably a dozen families who could not because of the ruralness, it just simply wasn't available. And for those people, we still have to provide paper, but it definitely shone a spotlight on the inequities. And and then trying to explain to a family with wealth why their child doesn't need to go out and spend $2,000, it's wonderful you did it, but we don't want them to use it, actually creates all different discussions, but we can. Yeah, uh, man, I've got a bunch of things run through my head. So first things first is one thing that I noticed in rural Alaska where I was a principal and rural Alaska is not the same in two Alaskans. So two Alaskans, I was in Kodiak and Fairbanks. uh, And if you 
if you don't know those places, then those are like bigger cities. <laughs> so, so the rural means different things to different people, but some people choose the rural lifestyle to be disconnected from the rest of the world intentionally. And so what challenges have you seen with people who don't want devices in their home or don't want internet in their home? Um, how have you negotiated that with them as well? That is a really good question. And we struggled with that in the spring as we went remote and prepared for the school year being partially remote. We basically needed to define what a school day was. A school, a remote school day is not being on the computer from eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. It is not, it, it is not. And so teachers needed to be very intentional about when they wanted students on. We actually looked at age limits and said, for example, a kindergartner to second grader should be on a total of 60 to 90 minutes a day and not all in one sitting. So you're planning out your day um, and, and having certain times that kids log on. And not all of that is in front of the teacher either. That includes any of the follow-up work, work that has to be done and other work needs to be not computer-based. Um, high school where there's, we have a block schedule. So there's four different teachers. We still needed to coordinate, you know, within a 90 minute class, this amount should be teacher directed and students could choose to stay on or go off. That helped settle some of those fears, knowing that we're not asking kids to be sitting in front of a computer from eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. But that took a lot of learning and, and also communication with parents. And then there are some parents who opted out altogether and either went to a private school, which is open, or oddly enough, online schooling, where they could control it differently. Um, there were a few of those as well. That's a really interesting choice for someone to make. Um, I think the the question that comes out of this, and you've alluded to it a couple of times, um, would probably have produced a different answer prior to the pandemic than it does now. But I'm always interested in hearing what people are experiencing in terms of the challenges of technology for educators. I mean, as you know, a lot of this is built around the Cyber Traps for Educators book that I did which really, you know, highlights some of the things that people can stumble into. But it feels like this remote slash hybrid teaching environment has shifted the game somewhat. It has. Um, on top of access, um, there, are, there are probably two main challenges that I think our educators faced. One is the reluctance, particularly of middle and high school students, to turn on their camera and a teacher teaching to a blank screen. And we're actually doing a major campaign starting this month in my emails to parents about why it's important to either turn on the camera and have a virtual background if you don't want your house seen or to at least respond when called upon because the teacher will call upon that blank screen and there's a no response. So that's one of the major issues. And, and a lot of that is you know, peers don't wanting, not wanting peers to see their house or their bedroom or whoever's walking behind them, or they're just simply 14 and that's the way it is. Well, they're right. And of course, there are all of these stories of parents um, inadvertently flashing the class or, you know, things yes, like yes. that. And it, it, right. and it doesn't even have to be anything salacious. I mean, I, I can completely... Or a weapon in the background, right. yes. <laughs> I can completely understand some kids being reluctant to share their home with their classmates. I mean, bullying, you right. know, bullying has so many sources of fuel. Why would you add to it? 
Right. And that's actually uh, another challenge that we had is, well, we've always had an issue with cyberbullying. And the more prevalent social media um, becomes, the more difficult that issue becomes. Going to, we use Google Meets. So going to Google Meets meeting added the chat feature. And we early on learned that if the teacher left Meets and didn't turn it off, the kids could continue. And there were things being said that were not very friendly. So we had to learn tools around how to handle a meet or a Zoom or, or something and, and how to handle the chat um, feature, um, as well as the usual, you know, Snapchat and everything else that kids use. That's a really good practical takeaway for this conversation, which is don't leave your social media stuff open. Actually, it's very funny because my sister Elizabeth is a veterinarian in southeastern Massachusetts. And she will sometimes check Facebook in between pets. And if she's not careful to close out her Facebook account, her staff will very helpfully update it for her. And so every once in a while, there'll be some really off the wall post from my sister. And I will know that she's left her thing open again. And, and this brings up a, a point that we kind of breezed over that bullying, cyberbullying doesn't just happen on social media, but it happens on any way for kids to communicate between each other. So if you're opening up email for students, if you're opening up chat for students, any of those things immediately become an opportunity for those things to happen. So we've had a different challenge in in my family with my oldest daughter, who when the, the Google apps for education we were using allowed her to send messages to anybody in the system not knowing who they were or having any connection with them. She could send emails and, and messages to anybody. And she's, uh, she's 14 now, she has Down syndrome. And so when, when that first was introduced, nobody knew that she was going to have a problem, not doing anything bad, but just contacting people that she shouldn't, that she doesn't know and shouldn't know. She would just type a letter into the email field and everybody's name would pop up with that letter and there were no uh, restrictions or anything put in place. So she was able, able to do that. And, and, you know, maybe she received some messages in return. Um, maybe she sent things that she, that were inappropriate, if not bullying, then at least not appropriate for her to send. Um, and maybe she just could have set herself up for bad situations, but anytime you have that asynchronous, digital communication, then those things can happen. So what do you do, Jeannie, to prevent and and help students make better choices with that? Aside from just saying you're not going to be able to use it at all, if you're going to have it, you're going to turn it on and use it. How do you help them make good choices with that? Well, I think you bring up some good points. And, and one is, again, by us providing the equipment, we can limit some of that. We can also go into our email system, Google Suite, and, and limit some access. But the other part of what you're saying, I have also seen where the current school generation does not email. And so they, they connect with their teachers by email only because they have to and only if reminded to go check it. But that's not how they communicate. And therefore, it's almost like our writing curriculum needs to address how do you appropriately email? How do you communicate through this, this venue? You know, we teach a lot about how to write a paper, but how do you write an email? You don't write it in all caps. You don't say, hey, yo, you know, you, there, there are just things that mannerisms that actually now need to be taught. And then we have an internet use policy 
and we need to be monitoring, you know, what the kids are doing, which again, with our own equipment is easier to do um, and use every learning opportunity to respond to the inappropriate, inappropriate use. Um, I can recall in making the decision about starting the school year remotely and phasing in the in-person, uh, a student, a high school student sending me a quite graphic, all capital email about why that was a bad idea. And <laughs> I had never interacted with the student before. So I tried to model back some appropriate, you know, thank you for reaching out to me. Let's talk about this. And instead I get back from her parents, a quite graphic, all capital <laughs> email that supports what she's saying. I'm like, all right, we're, we're moving on now. <laughs> so, you know, we need to be aware that our kids don't necessarily even have that skill. Well, that I think is just such a beautiful segue into one of the other questions that has, you know, kind of been burning a hole in my pocket, which is, you know, what impact have you seen technology have on the relationship between schools and the community? Now, you can say community broadly in the political sense. We had all of those battles, right? But then in terms of people who are interacting directly with the schools, which mostly will be parents, of course. Right. So again, the pandemic, like you said, highlights all this stuff. I couldn't have answered the questions the same way a year ago, but um, you know, we already had technology brings robo messaging, whether it's calling or emails or et cetera. For years, we've talked about, wouldn't it be nice to collect parent email addresses? Once last March, I started a, well, at that time, a three times a week email to our families, which is now still a once a week email all these months later. Um, suddenly we had parent emails connect, collected. So I'll send an email out and parents who don't have it hear from other parents and email us and say, how do I get on your list? We put it on Facebook, we put it on the web. So we look for every social media opportunity to get it out. Another um, great opportunity to connect is our school board meetings are now by Zoom and virtual. And for the first time really in my seven years there, we have people showing up and participating in those meetings. Also, um, I did a principal search totally virtually last year. And interesting. In, <laughs> it is. In fact, when I met this principal this fall in his building, I said, I haven't actually met you in person before. I mean, I know, you know, it's like I hired you totally virtually. And his Zoom interview for the community had 50 people on it, whereas an in-person one, we would have been happy if a dozen had shown up. So there was more involvement. People had more opportunity to interact. You know, it's amazing, Jeannie. It's like doing okay Cupid, but for schools. Like it's okay. <laughs> well, I'm about to do another. So any principals out there? <laughs> so it's, it's interesting you bring that piece up because um, going to Alaska, it it was virtual. My whole interview process was virtual and I didn't travel there until I had already secured the job. Um, and then going to Fairbanks, it was the same thing. It was all virtual until... Um, the the very final interview and then that one was in person and so what's so amazing to me is that pockets of society have already been dealing with some of these issues of remoteness and virtual meetings and things like that like the training that I do with principals has been remote for the last four years because I lived in Alaska and I just couldn't travel down to to coach principals and it and I still do it virtually uh, even now so it's it's really interesting how different pockets have, have already experienced it. And now other people are learning about it and, and seeing it and how it's, 
your like amazement and excitement about it, Jeannie, is really cool because it's that's what it is. It's amazing that we can we can still build relationships, we can still connect, and you're even showing some examples of how it's better because you're getting more engagement because people can access it from anywhere. And I think that that piece is is really important. And I, I've mentioned before that I need to have you on my other podcast because I'd like to go deeper into this education part of, of things and how, how we do that. But in, in talking about the community, um, you're able to connect with families in a way that that is now equal to how you're connecting with your staff and with the students. Can you talk a little bit about that connection piece? Yeah, I, I would also add to that connection piece. Teachers also are connecting with families that they didn't when they were fully in person. Parents have a better idea of what's being taught in the classrooms. So I had a, a school board member last night who's a parent of three, who this particular week were remote and we go back to in person next week. And she said that she really appreciated knowing what's happening in the classroom. And she thought this was a nice phased in approach. The relationship I think between the teaching staff and the parents has improved. I probably for six of my seven years here was that figurehead who periodically posted something that was happening in the schools. And now, as I mentioned to you two earlier, I, I got COVID last month and I ended up in the front page of the local newspaper and I had dozens of parents emailing me to check on me that, I didn't know a few months ago. I mean, it just, you know, there's, there's a relationship. I'm a real person now. You know, let me just toss in. And, and, and I think this ties into what you were saying. Uh, my wife, Amy is, is a member of the union at the fashion Institute of technology, and they've been holding their labor meetings and attendance has exploded for exactly that reason. And it seems like things that used to be off limits or used to be, we can't do that or we can't participate in that way, people are now able to. And so uh, my question for going forward is what what are the things that you're going to keep doing that you would have never thought to do before? And what are the things that you're like, I can't wait till we can get back to quote unquote normal? It is a great question. I don't have all the answers, but I I would like to continue. Well, I think the school board is looking to continue more connection virtually and keeping virtual an option for every meeting, even when they go back to in-person. We also started with an incredible survey tool, Thought Exchange, that gathers input that goes beyond surveying, and we would continue with that. I'd like to continue more direct communication myself with families. And I, before the pandemic, I had already flirted with the idea, should we have a remote academy available for folks? I'd like to go back and revisit that because remote learning for some kids, and honestly, often it's the kids who are, some of the kids who are being bullied have commented on this, but remote learning has helped some kids. It has personalized learning somewhat more than when you're all sitting in the classroom. And for other kids, it's not great at all. So in a way of personalizing and making options available for kids, I'd love to pursue an option for kids. The way we're doing remote learning, uh, we're not running a separate academy. Our kids actually zoom into their classroom. So about 10% of our elementary students chose to stay remote, but about 25% of our high school students and our high school, middle school, high school students are in person two days every week, alternating two days. And the days they're not in, they're supposed to log into their classroom. Um, It's not a separate academy, but I'm, I'm wondering if we need a separate academy. It's an interesting question. 
I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what sort of more broadly you think the impact of this new method of instruction has had on the kids. I've, I'm, I have eight nieces and nephews who range in age from about four to 18 or 17, I guess. They just turned 17. And I, I think it's fair to say that for the older kids, this has been particularly difficult. You know, for my younger nieces, it's it's kind of a game still. You know, it's it, there's kind of a lot of excitement. Frankly, they're spending more time with mom and dad than they were before. So there's an upside there. And they don't really appreciate the gravity quite so much of what's going on. But I think the impact of this remote or hybrid learning on kids who are in the throes of socialization has been really tough. And I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, as you mentioned, I have a 14-year-old and um, who's doing remote learning from home and a 19-year-old who learning last semester in college and will again this semester. And, and it changed the way both of them connect. So both of them miss the social aspect. I have had kids in the high school tell me, I'm coming in those two days because I want to see my friends at lunch, even if we have to sit six feet apart. That social aspect is, is missed. And the social skills that you learn in high school as you're navigating as hard as high school is, as you're navigating it, um, is different when you're all online. The way I see my 14-year-old approaching his learning is more task-oriented. My teacher said I have to do one, two, and three. They're done. I'm done. As opposed to um, kind of integrating the learning. Some of that depends on how the teaching is done. And, and teachers have had to change the way they think about lessons as well and their organization. The 19-year-old took four classes and it was totally asynchronous. And she, she had no idea because she didn't log on at a certain time. She had no idea to, how to approach that till we sat down and said, well, on Monday you can do class A and on Tuesday you can do class B and every day you just do one class. And then that took the overwhelmness out of it for her, but that was not a skill that she'd ever had before. You show up at 10 o'clock on Monday and that's when my English class is. Well, actually your English class for the week is gonna be Monday mornings, you know? Um, so there's just, there's, there's nuances I think to navigating campus life and social life that don't exist in, in, with technology only. That's really interesting. I, 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 the reason I raised this particular question, um, all of my kids, as you know, are post high school, post college actually now, which is scary. But, but it, when, I'm, when I'm looking at these headlines from around the country and honestly from around the world, you see people talking about this concept of a lost generation, you know, not, not in the kind of 1960s zoned drugged out sense, but in the sense that this pandemic has significantly upended an aspect of childhood or education that, that these kids might've expected. Do you think it, number one, do you think that's true? And do you think that it's recoverable? So I do think that, Kind of, yes, it's true. And yes, it's recoverable if we come out of this after this year. I don't think one year a generation makes. You know, I think we need to be thoughtful about what we take forward. And um, I, I also think that we, the adults through this, have been so focused on making this work that we've kind of forgotten about how to connect with our kids who could tell us how to make it work better. And as I'm listening to you, I'm structuring some ideas in my own head about, okay, let's go back to that. So I think we need to talk to the kids and capture 
from them what the impact is. Um, and and take that away as some of our takeaways. And, and yes, I, I do think it's recoverable and it will improve our system, but it also does some harm right now. I just don't think it needs to be long-term harm. Yeah, it, it, it occurs to me partly because of your poetic reference to swallows and summers that these will always be pandemic kids, right? I mean, I, I, I think that that is just the way of the world, that, that this will be a defining moment for kids. And, and I would imagine pedagogically, and technology gives us great opportunities to do this, that, that capturing those voices, capturing those perspectives of the kids could be very powerful, you know, both in terms of their own self-awareness and self-evaluation, but then also in terms of our response as educators and school board members and so forth. Right. So tomorrow, my mother turns 92 years old. And she indicated that she missed kindergarten in person because of, I mean, she was born after the 1918 flu. So whatever, polio, it was polio. So she missed kindergarten in person because of polio. I'm not really sure that stunted her life. She she is making it to 92, very doing very well. Um, <laughs> But she, but she remembers that. She but remembers she that remembers she did it. not get a kindergarten year. And our pandemic kids are going to remember this year. But I think they also can help shape where this year takes us. And, and I think we do them a disservice when we say they're losing something, when really they're just having a different experience than we experienced. And, and that's where my frustration has been as an educator with people saying that kids are going to fall behind and lose all these things. And that's not really the case because no kid is ever behind because they are just ready for the next thing. And so they may have been ready for the next thing six months earlier if we were in person, maybe, but then again, maybe not. And so we, we do a disservice by saying it's, it's lost or giving the impression that it's hopeless, which I don't think is what you were saying there, Fred, but, but I hear that kind of sentiment going on as we talk about this. And, and we really need to recognize and value, as you said, Jeannie, that they have a different perspective and they can also help us make it better for them and for us. And they can, they can do things that we just don't understand. For example, recognizing that, you know, when the pandemic first hit, my family, I, I had me who was a principal and I was now working from home. I had my wife who's a stay at home mom and she was at home and my kids didn't need a lot of support, but our district was trying really hard to give the same thing to everybody when that was not what my family needed. We didn't need all this extra stuff in order to be successful. My neighbor across the street who's had two parents who were in the home, but they were both essential workers. So they still had to work every single day. That student needed a lot more than my students did. And so I think recognizing that it's okay for us not all to get the same thing and to, to adjust what we're doing to meet the needs of those who are there is really the, the right way to approach this, that, you know, some people are going to need more and we should give them more. And some people are going to need less and we should give them less. And that doesn't mean that we're being unfair or, or anything like that. It means that we're giving people what they need when they need it. Jethro, I think you just kind of highlighted where education has gone since the industrial age, because another another spotlight under the pandemic is how we still march in tune. Everybody gets 
Everybody gets second grade. Everybody gets third grade. It's going to take you nine months to get through it. And then you're going to go to fourth grade. That's not true. And that's one of the opportunities that can come out of this. So if you're six months early in English, but not in math, why can't you move forward? And can we use technology to help make that happen for some students? Yeah, this is a really interesting discussion. And and Jethro, I think you're exactly right, right? I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form that there's been this big hole blown in the lives of these kids. I think it's just been a disruption that, that we're going to have to figure out some way to process. But Jeannie, to your point, I remember way, way, way back when I was in fourth grade, there was no organized enrichment, but I was in a cohort of kids who were really good readers. And so what they ended up doing was, you know, like the last half hour of the day, we went to the fifth grade English teacher and did, you know, the next level. And it's that kind of thing, right? But again, with technology now, you wouldn't actually physically have to move anywhere they would just give you a new list of books to download and it would be a lot easier. So yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll take away a lot of different, both pedagogical and technological lessons from what we've experienced over the last year. I've been fascinated at how much it has fast forwarded some aspects of education. I think it is fair to say, based on our experience, that educational institutions do not necessarily move quickly. And this is forced quickness on us. Fred, you may recall as the Burlington board member discussions we had about whether or not we should have a policy at the high school that kids have to put away their cell phones. And I have been a proponent for a long time that why are we telling kids to put away their cell phones as opposed to teaching them how to use them, the etiquette, the media literacy, et cetera. Um, And I think that you know, that's another spotlight right now. The fact is cell phones are a part of every kid's life from the second they wake up till the second they go to sleep, which sometimes are the same second. Um, <laughs> Speak for yourself. I- <laughs> kids, I said, kids. Right. Um, we need to be teaching them, again, how to use the technology appropriately, how to, how to know what's fake and what's real. Um, how to respond, et cetera. Well, one of my favorite stories, Jeannie, coming out of my time on the school board is that when I got on the board, as I said, we were debating these one-to-one initiatives and huge multi-million dollar purchases from these vendors and you know, going to meetings and pitches and all the rest of that. And by the time I got off the board in 2010, the kids every year were bringing in more powerful devices than we could afford to buy for them. Which creates equity issues, but that's correct going to say, and discipline and risk issues and all the rest of it. Absolutely true. I think underscored for me, and this is, I think, one of the origins of the Cybertraps work I've done, it underscored for me how quickly kids were leapfrogging adults and institutions. And and they still are. So one more quick story from that time was my daughter at the time, the one who's 19, may have been nine, and she had set up her own Facebook account with my knowledge, to be honest, but she was under the age of 13 and a bullying issue occurred and, you know, she spoke up. And so I said, time to, um, time to close the account. And her response then was no problem. I'll just open Snapchat. What's Snapchat? I mean, it was like, I can't keep up. That's the perfect story to leave this conversation on, honestly, because, you know, it underscores just how challenging it is for parents to keep up and hopefully this show will help. Uh, Jethro, anything else to uh, toss into this? 
Well, just just that story there at the end is is so per- it so perfectly encapsulates the challenges that we face that uh, as soon as as soon as we as the adults say we try to put a lid back on Pandora's box, the the box is already open. They go find the other thing. So so really, what we need to do is take a step back and be teaching these things before we ever give them access to them, so they understand what the right things to do are. So Jeannie, one of the things I like to do is to give our guests a chance to have the final word. Is there anything as a superintendent or as a parent that you want to throw out to people? We really need to accept that the world is changing. Our kids are living in a different world. And like Jethro just said, for us, it may be a case of keeping up, but we can't be afraid of it because it's here regardless of whether we want it to be here or not. So we really need to embrace it and figure out um, how to guide our young charges through it. That's a terrific ending sentiment, Jeannie. Thank you so much. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, the challenges of high-tech parenting, and frankly, anything else that strikes our fancy. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts like Jeannie, who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. And you can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast players. And please reach out to either Fred or myself if you have questions. On Twitter, Fred is at Cybertraps and I'm at Jethro Jones. And if you're still listening, you've probably enjoyed what you've heard. So if that's the case, please go leave us a rating and share this with your friends so that others can hear about it. We appreciate having you listen to the podcast and we're thankful for what you give us and for look forward to sharing more with you in the future. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things. You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com slash B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.